Good morning. Thank you for being here. Uh, that was a, if you didn't figure it out from the title, a Waldo drawing. First service, my dad was here. He's like, I didn't know what I was watching there for a minute. So, hey, I want to talk to you about three people uh, just off the bat here. The first two are two of our elders, Brad Brady and Brian Burns. They gave me the gift of rest the last couple weeks and preached. And it was so good. I told them, will you guys just get up the next two weeks and preach the, just preach the exact same messages? But would you thank them with me? The third person I want to talk to you about is a man named Martin Hanford. And Martin Hanford, if you don't know, is the illustrator and creator of Where's Waldo. Is everybody familiar with Where's Waldo books? You've likely spent minutes, hours, weeks in my case, searching for Waldo. There are 68 different Where's Waldo uh, pictures in which you've got to find this character, Waldo, that Martin Hanford created through the years. And uh, if you're like me, you've spent all kinds of time looking for Waldo, but something has changed. Something has shifted when it comes to where's Waldo. We've done this very human thing that we humans tend to do. We have decided to try to figure out the most effective, efficient, fastest way to find Waldo. And so, we began to apply some formulas. In fact, one blogger from a fairly well-known site, you know what he did? He figured out that 53% of the time, Waldo can be found within one of two one-and-a-half-inch wide bands, one three inches up from the bottom of the page, one seven inches up from the bottom of the page. I know you're hearing it and you're thinking, it's Waldo. It's Waldo. Why all the analysis? Not to be outdone, there was a different guy who used a process called kernel mapping. Okay, I don't even know what that is, but he basically plotted the location of Waldo across 68 different pictures. Again, this is Waldo, okay? This is not a profession. It's just Waldo. He applied it to an algorithm and figured out the exact path your eyes, the most efficient path for your eyes to take in order to discover Waldo. Okay, it's just ludicrous, right? It gets even worse. So there was someone else who came up with a software program using facial recognition to find Waldo. So how does it feel, everybody? Now a robot can find Waldo in five seconds. And you look at all that and you just go, what? Somehow we moved something that was meant to be a search into a formula. In fact, when this got back to Martin Hanford, this is exactly what he said. Never meant for this to be a formula. This was a search. And what we've done with finding Waldo, I believe, as I look around, as I even think about my own experience, we've done that with finding ourselves, with finding our identity. Because isn't it easier to just depend on a formula, a process, check off the boxes, step by step, and, and for myself and for many of my peers, the search for identity ended as teenagers when we came into a living relationship with Jesus Christ. That's where that search ended. But I noticed something began to happen as I look back. Many of these friends that we, we all came to Jesus together, I, a lot of my heartache comes from looking around because I see them on social media and they've abandoned that faith. Some set of circumstances caused them to to move on from this living relationship with Jesus Christ. And as I think back, for for many of us, especially when we were a teenager, you know what we did? We reduced it to a formula. We said, okay, well, if I just, if I pray the right prayer, and and if I check off the attendance box, and and I go to church every week, 
And if I give 10% and if I check off the baptism box and I check off the communion box, all of these are incredible things. All of these will actually enrich a relationship with Jesus Christ. But what we tend to do is that very human thing. We reduce it to a formula and we depend on our ability to carry out and live up to and execute the formula. And I look around and I just think, what happened? Well, where was the disconnect? Somehow, somewhere, somehow they looked around at whatever stage of life they were in and, and you likely know people. Maybe you are somebody who's dealing with this. That, that I can't quite compute and connect the dots between what I'm going through and, and Jesus' presence in my life. And, and the reason for that is because it's a search, not a formula. And when you search and you arrive at Jesus Christ as your identity, a new search begins. That search to find ends and the search to express that identity begins. And it's a process. And so, well, I want to talk to you over the next five weeks about a life of someone that you've likely heard of, someone just like you and I, and the specifics of their life will never be the specifics or most likely won't be the specifics of your life or my life, but the elements are the same. And if we could look around at the elements that this man named Moses dealt with, if we could look through and look at the elements that he dealt with, you know what you'll discover? That even though he was on a search to find and express himself, there was the presence of something so much more than just Moses there. And so the next five weeks, I want to walk through what those elements are. Because you know these elements. You've lived these elements. And it's learning to just see what Moses ended up seeing in the midst of these elements. And so let me give you a little background. The world Moses was born into at the beginning of Exodus, that's where we're gonna be, Exodus chapters two through four. It's second book of the Bible, right near the beginning there. But the world that Moses was born into at the beginning of Exodus is not what the world looked like at the end of Genesis, the book right before Exodus. At the end of Genesis, God's people are in high favor, especially within Egypt. I mean, they are, they are uh, taken care of, they're provided for, they're sustained. People are, people are generally just joyful is the sense you get as you read it. Not so in Exodus. Exodus chapter one says a new king rose to power, a new Pharaoh. And he did not have any kind of high regard for Joseph. Joseph and all of his, his um, uh, relatives meant nothing. To this new Pharaoh. In fact, as this Pharaoh looked at God's people, you know what he said? He thought, this is a threat. It is spreading. It is multiplying. I've got to do something. And so the Pharaoh issued an edict. He said, you know what? When a baby is born, if it's a girl, it's fine. Take care of it. Keep it. Nourish. Sustain. Help them grow. Help her grow. If it's a boy, throw them into the river throw them into the river because he did not want, he did not want the population of God's people to grow any further. And on top of it, he subjected them to incredibly harsh labor. This was nothing fruitful. This was oppressive. This was brutal, harsh labor. And so this is the world that Moses is born into. And as I look at what Moses came into, I begin to see some parallels between what he was born into and what you and I walk through. And I understand what the challenge is. I've come to see maybe with eyes wide open, oh my goodness, what Moses was facing is what so many of us face in the world we walk in. And how do you, how do you discover who you truly are and express who you truly are? 
Take a look at the beginning of Exodus chapter two. Verse one says, now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, pay attention to this word because this is a theme at the beginning of Moses's life. She hid him. She hid him for three months. And see, this is a good hiding. This started out well. This was their plan. We're going to hide him because he had to be hidden in order to survive. Verse 3, but when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Verse 5, then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. And suddenly, we're at a, we're at a fork in the road. Pharaoh's daughter, who no doubt knew the, the edict that Pharaoh had issued to throw baby boys into the river, is faced with a decision. What does she do? And Moses' life hangs in the balance. Verse 7, then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Okay, this plan is working out great. Oh, I'll just go get one of the Hebrew women for you and goes and gets Moses' mom. It gets even better. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. Ladies, can you imagine nursing your children and getting paid for it? Yeah, it's a different world, different world. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. Verse 10, when the child, and we're going to get years in one sentence here. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Now, don't miss the contrast here. She drew, his name means drawn out of the water. But he lives in a world, and he lives in a culture, and he lives in a society that says what? Throw him in the water. Named, drawn out of the water. Lives in a world that says, throw him in the water. And as I look at Moses' life, I realize there's this thing that we all face. We all are born into a world where we have to live every single day to some degree, some level, in who we're not. Because if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you, you have discovered this. That your citizenship, there's a sense when you look at this world that you go, this is not home. This world is not our home, is it? I mean, just take the elections in a few weeks. I, I mean, for, there, there's all kinds of angst, isn't there? But isn't that the case pretty much every election? And part of the angst for us as Christians is, is really this. There is no worldly structure, be it politics, entertainment, the sciences, I mean, you name it. There is no worldly structure that fully, completely can align with what the kingdom of God has put inside of us. None of it fully captures the essence of God's kingdom. And so we have to understand that we are born into a world that just does not align with what God has put inside of us when we come to know Jesus Christ. And so 
we face something very similar to what Moses faced. How do you walk in a world that doesn't fully align? I was reminded of this when I was in seminary. Um, we, I had this class that the time it got out every single day, we'd exit out one door of one building. At the same time, the counseling students were walking out a, a, a nearby door in another building. Now, I don't know. Some of you in here are counselors. I have the utmost respect, okay? Before I ever went to a counselor, I had this image of what a counselor was. And, and the, the bright red sign that was flashing in my mind was just avoid. Avoid. Because they're going to ask these prying questions, and they're going to want to get down to who I really am, and I just don't want to do it. So we would leave this class at the seminary, and these counseling students were coming out, and they're incredibly friendly. You know, they're waving, they're saying, hi, how are you? And all I could think was, don't look at them. Just don't look at them. It, which probably caused them to think there's something really wrong with me. But it was just like, and if they said, how are you? Suddenly I was worried about what tone of voice I answer, and what body language I use, because am I going to get analyzed right now? And, and this is what Moses is going through. He's sitting here going, okay, I, I know... I know who I am inside, but I walk in a world. I live in a world where I'm, I'm trying to live in something I'm not. And it works for a little while. It works for a little while. But eventually, because we're born into a world that's full of sin, because we're born in sin, because everything has been distorted by sin, you know what happens? Is that who we are is going to express itself. It's just going to. And here's what happened as it expressed itself from Moses. Verse 11, one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. He killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now, if you could sit down with Moses just before he committed this act and ask him, what is going on inside of you right now? I bet you'd hear something incredible because there was in Moses a sense that what he was seeing in front of him was not right. There was a sense of rescue. There was maybe a sense of, I need to help. There was a sense of justice. And yet, because he had grown up hidden, not able to express fully who he was yet, because we live in a world filled with sin, there was a very distorted expression of a really good thing that was stirring inside. You see, this is what happens. This is what happens when we try to fix and express, when we try to find and express who we are with a formula. We end up breaking the very thing we meant to fix. See, Moses had this upbringing that was hidden. And not only was he hidden, but something was hiding in him. And that thing hiding in him needed to be dealt with before he could fully express who he was. Because it wasn't dealt with, it killed someone. This is what happens. I, I remember years ago, and some of you know this about me, just from years of walking together, I, most of my life, I wanted to be a firefighter. 
I so badly wanted to be a firefighter. I mean, people knew this, so they'd buy me these little Hot Wheels fire engines that I'd put around my room, and if I saw a fire engine going by, I would, like, cheer for them. They didn't care that I was there. They didn't even see me, but I'm cheering for them. We'd go on youth trips to, like, big cities like New York, Chicago. I'd go stop at a fire station because I just wanted autographs from firefighters. True stories, okay? And then one day, I get out of high school, and I decide to go to fire academy. And one day, something had been unsettled for weeks. And I'm at this fire academy. We had just done a drill carrying a ladder. We had done it wrong. We had just been reprimanded. And we got to break time, and I just went, I hate this. I hate this. Like, I, I jumped into this because I wanted to help. And I wanted to rescue people. And I wanted to just do something for other people. And yet, I just hate this. And I finally came to the realization, I don't want the job of a firefighter. I want to be on the firefighter calendar, but I do not want the job of a firefighter. I still hope to be on the firefighter calendar. Do not hold your breath, though. <laughs> it's not going well right now. So, but isn't it true? We all have that thing inside of us where you want to, and that's God-stirred. That is God's fingerprint on you. That he wants to use you and he wants to use us in this world that does not fully align with the kingdom of God in order to have an impact on somebody. If I could speak to my friends, and I truly mean friends and brothers and sisters who, who are strong proponents of this phrase and this thing we're seeing in the news and hearing about a lot, the social justice movement. I, I, I know many people that, that are in huge support of it. And I would say that sense of justice inside is a God-stirred thing. But here's the issue that I see keep, that just keeps coming up, is that as long as it's our human definition of justice, it's never going to fully agree. Because what is justice to one person is an injustice to somebody else. And so what happens is in order to carry out justice, we run over somebody else. And that in itself is an injustice in God's eyes. A man named Miroslav Volf said it this way. He said, justice, in a system of justice, we condemn the act and we condemn the doer. God condemns the act and dies for the doer. And that, that is what truly our identity in Christ is about. That we would bring people to a God who condemns the act, condemns the sin, and dies for the doer. That amazing, amazing grace. But see, when we try to apply our formulas, those things that we just check the box in order to find and express who we are, we end up breaking the thing we intended to fix. Now, here's what I love about Moses' story at the beginning here, is that something else was going on the entire time, whether Moses realized it or not. Take a look at verse 13. The next day... He went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. Verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. And then Moses did the only thing that Moses and you and I can do. When we've tried our formulas, our strength, our strategies to fix what's in front of us, to express our identity, and it doesn't work. He did the only thing any of us could do, 
Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by, and this sentence should kind of throw us off a little bit. He went to Midian, which was wilderness, and he sat down by a well. Okay, when have you ever been in the middle of the desert and actually found a well? And let, let me point you to something that I love about Moses' story. Because hidden in everything we just read, there's something else happening. Moses has been seen the entire time. He's born, and the, the author of Hebrews tells us his parents saw something about him. We read it here again. His parents saw something in him. He gets hidden among the reeds, and who's standing back watching? His sister. She's watching the entire time. He commits this, uh, this horrendous act, murders an Egyptian, tries to hide it. You know what we discover? Somebody saw. And then we get to the wilderness. Moses flees to the wilderness, and there is a well in the middle of the wilderness. You know what that tells me? Somebody sees Moses. Somebody's not just watching Moses. Somebody's watching out for Moses. Do you want to know what's been going on your entire life and my entire life? That while we've spent a lot of time living in who we're not and trying to discover who we are and who we're not, and when we've found Christ, how to express that identity, the entire time while we've been focused on our formula and my ability to carry out, to carry out, to carry out, maybe a formula, the whole time we've been seen by someone else. For Moses, it was parents, a sister, and, and some peers. But when he gets to the wilderness and there's a well, you know what that tells me? He's seen by his heavenly father. And while for him, it's a well in the middle of the wilderness, you know what it is for us? It's right there. I mean, there's a reason we've got these up here. Because in the middle of all of Moses' searching, even when he doesn't know how best to express what God is stirring inside of him, you want to know what's in the background there? The cross. The cross, because the cross is a statement that God makes that says, I see you. I see you. You want to know how I feel about you when you come into this world? Look at the cross. Do you want to know how I feel about the sin that, that just permeates every cell? The cross. You want to know how I feel about you going forward? The cross. Specifically, God on a cross. It is the greatest act of justice that has ever been carried out in the history of the world, and it will be the greatest act of justice that is ever carried out. God dispensed the justice upon himself because he was the only one who could take it. And we received the forgiveness. Now, I don't know about you, but there is just something about that, that for all the figuring out of who am I and how do I express myself, that causes me to just go, okay, okay. It is a search to figure out who we are, no doubt. But one of my favorite elements of the Martin Hanford story, the illustrator of Where's Waldo, is a psychologist came along and wrote an article about all these formulas people applied to finding Waldo. And you know what the psychologist said? They said, actually, where he placed Waldo tells us even more 
about himself, the creator. Can you imagine that? That in the middle of searching for yourself, in the middle of trying to discover who we are, that we may just discover even more about who he is. See, that's when you go looking for yourself and you find so much more. And so my hope and my prayer is that over the next month, we would be able to look around our lives and look at some of these elements we're going to talk about. And and even if it's tough and difficult as it was for a lot of Moses' life, that we could look around and be reminded of who God is. And that it is evidence that the cross, the presence of the cross in every element is a reminder, not of who we're not, but of who he is. Because that's a different way to wake up and go through your day from. That's a different place to live your day from. And so, one thing I'd ask of you this week. I would love for every single person in here to sit down with Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. And just read it for yourself. But what I want you to do is I want you to get somewhere where you can see a cross. Whether you've got one hanging on the wall, you've got to draw one on a piece of paper right there on the page, do it. Because as you read Exodus, the beginning of chapter 2, I want you to have that reminder that while Moses searched for who he was and how to express it, while you search for who you are and how to express that, that identity in Christ, that there is a cross in the background from a God who says, I see you, I see you. And if you need any further evidence, you have only to look, as the worship team comes back up, you have only to look at what Jesus said from the cross. The cross. His executioners have divvied up his clothes. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They've whipped him. They've punctured his side. And you know what Jesus says? He says to his executioners, the same thing he would say to you and I if we were his executioners. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's a God who understands. We're going to spend some time figuring out who we're not. And it does not affect his love for us. Let me pray and we'll close with one song. Heavenly Father, thank you. If all we ever prayed was thank you, we could spend the rest of our lives praying it. Thank you that you are a God who maybe your amazing grace is most amazing because while we search and we look for and we try to apply formulas to figuring out who we are and how to express our identity in you, that you look upon us and in the background, there is a cross. Father, bring the cross to the forefront of our field of vision as we look around our lives at the various elements that we're gonna look at over the coming weeks, as we look at Moses's life, let your cross always be at the forefront and let us be reminded that we are seen by you. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.